What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Matt Kenyon, and you're listening to Composer Code, the podcast dedicated to helping you make better video game music through interviews, through dissecting the brains of those who have come before us. And boy, have I got a doozy for you today. My mind, guys, my mind is still reeling from the conversation I just had with Gordy Hab. He's the composer for the Battlefront 1 and 2 games, the new ones. And man, I don't know if you guys have listened to that soundtrack, but he's been referred to as the heir apparent to John Williams. And I, I can't disagree. His stuff is absolutely amazing. If you want to make video game music, especially music that involves the orchestra, you need to pay very close attention to this episode. We talk about how to do a score reduction. We talk about some of the secrets of John Williams' orchestration. We talk about advice for composers on how to up their orchestral chops. We talk about his personal favorite doublings. And Oh, I almost forgot. He scored Ryan versus Dorkman 2. There's like two of you right now who are listening to this who are going insane. Do you guys remember that? I must have watched the thing on YouTube a billion times. Anyway, I stalked his IMDB page and I kind of opened with that. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, actually that's, there's, there's quite a bit of history with that little short film. Um, so I met Mike Scott, who is Dorkman, um, when I worked on a short film that he had directed called the monkey's paw. It was like a little horror film, like five minute long thing. And uh, I worked with him for a bit on that. And then he, he was telling me about this Star Wars fan film that he was creating called, or actually doing a sequel to his first one, Ryan versus Dorkman. But this time he wanted to have an original composer write a score and potentially record it. So uh, we sort of came up with this idea, myself and my buddy Kyle Newmaster, who co-composed it with me. Uh, we came up with this idea of pooling all of the fans of the first Ryan versus Dorkman on YouTube and just seeing if we could raise money to actually hire an orchestra to record the score. And, uh, in, in a matter of like maybe three or four days, we raised enough money, uh, just from fans of the first film to hire a full 80 piece orchestra and Capitol records for a day to record this score. So, uh, ended up writing this huge orchestral score. Um, it became somewhat popular on YouTube back in the day when, uh, you know, it was a, pretty big deal to get 5 million hits. Um, you know, now, now everything gets 5 million hits, but this was huge when it happened. And, uh, somebody at Lucasfilm had seen it and they were looking for a composer for an Indiana Jones, uh, video game called Indiana Jones and the staff of Kings. And, uh, and I got a call basically saying, Hey, we love what you did on this short film, Ryan versus Dorkman too. Uh, would you be interested in demoing for this video game? So I did. And that's how I ended up getting my first video game job. And all, and pretty much everything I've done in the video game world could all stem from that particular game. You know, it was all repeat business with LucasArts and, you know, which got me into the Star Wars world a bit. And then that, you know, of course, you know, translated over to working with EA on Battlefront, et cetera. So you talked about how you write your scores by hand. Can you tell me a little bit about your composition process all the way from sitting down at your piano, getting out your pen your or your pencil and your manuscript paper? Because I'm a millennial. I grew up on, you know, Fruity Loops and GarageBand. So the idea of writing your scores by hand blows my mind, but I, I respect it so much. So I would love if you could maybe break down your process all the way from sitting down at your piano to, uh, you know, a finished manuscript. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, I, I guess I'll preface with uh, the fact that I went to a, a pretty small school in Virginia for music called uh, Virginia Commonwealth University. 
my main mentor there was this guy, Doug Richards, and, and he was adamant about all of his students learning to write music by hand. And so I sort of was trained that way. And uh, I mean, his concept behind it was, you know, look, if you can if you can hear it in your head and write it down, then then you're not using trial and error to create music. You're actually using, you know, your mind's ear and craft. And so, you know, I got really into this method. And, um, you know, then when I moved out to Los Angeles and got into actually scoring film, I realized really quickly that, you know, the technology was a vital part of the process. So I, of course, built a studio and, and learned all of that stuff as well. But it's always just been easiest for me to conceive music from from a pencil paper start. So when I typically start writing a piece of music, you know, I, I you know, if it's something to picture, I'll spot the picture and figure out the exact timings and then sort of figure out, you know, how many measures do I have of music before I hit this point? And then how many measures will I have before I have to hit this next cut to a new scene or something like that? And I basically lay all of that out. And then I go over to the piano with that sketch and I just start writing, you know, by hand. And, you know, probably 80% of what I'm writing, I'm writing just from my own inner ear, you know, just straight from my head to the page uh, because I'm not a very good piano player. But when I need to test things out and make sure that they are working, I, you know, I use the piano as sort of my, you know, as a tool to, to test. Uh, once I have a solid sketch of a piece of music, you know, written by hand, Either I or someone working with me will take that sketch and create uh, like a synthesized mock-up of it. And, and I'm speaking more for the, you know, the games and films that have done that have had, you know, full orchestra recordings where the final product is going to be something recorded. These mock-ups are not the final product. So typically what I'll do is we'll do like a pretty rough, you know, 75% there synth mock-up, get that approved by, you know, saying the case of, Battlefront, EA, and Lucasfilm and Disney all listen and they all approve it. Once it's approved, then I go to the computer and I do all of my orchestration in uh, notation software called Finale. And once that's done, then that goes to our copyist who does all the parts for the orchestra. And then we go to the studio, pass out parts and, you know, let the magic happen, I guess. <laughs> that's sort of the, uh, from the very beginning to the end, genesis of a, of a cue. The cues that you wrote for for Battlefront Two are so complex and so, um, uh, frankly, in, indistinguishable to my ear from John Williams. So so kudos to you. Um, but it seems like there's so much going on. How do you hear the instruments in your head as you're sitting down at the piano, or or do you sort of save the arranging portion for later? Um, I mean, I hear about eighty percent of it. You know, pretty much orchestrated. In fact, I actually have a hard time understanding the other way around of being able to hear music and not hearing the instruments that will eventually play it. So when I hear music in my head, I basically hear it orchestrated. So then it's a matter of how do I get it out of my head without, before I forget it, <laughs> you know? Um, but I'm always hearing yeah, the actual yeah. instruments that are going to play each part. And uh, so that's, that's always been something, maybe it's just natural to me to hear music that way. Um, you know, I mean, I, my background is listening to a lot of classical music and, uh, and jazz. And so I'm used to hearing all those instruments and, you know, hearing their distinctions and, you know, what, what makes them different from each other, et cetera. And uh, so they're just a part of my, you know, inner monologue vocabulary, I guess. Um, I, you know, I, like I was saying, I, I have a harder time understanding how to hear music without hearing the actual instrument. I mean, like writing with just the sound of a piano is usually the reason I try to write just by ear first. 
because once I start hearing the sound of the piano, I start forgetting the actual sound of the orchestra that I was initially hearing in my head. So I try to avoid, you know, doing a lot of playing around on the piano to find things and try to actually hear it in my head first. Uh, I just have better luck with that. I mean, it's a process that works for me. Um, you know, certainly not the, you know, the end all be all of all processes for composing music. I know probably more than not uh, composers write at a sequencer where they can actually, you know, assign the instrument they're thinking of to the keyboard. So, you know, if you're thinking of a French horn part, you put a French horn patch on your keyboard and you can hear it played that way. Um, but I just, I just work a little differently, I guess. You kind of alluded to it with the whole just listening to a ton of music, but if you were to advise someone on how they get to that point where they the vocabulary of the orchestra, as you said, is just sort of internalized, what would you recommend for them to do? Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, I would listen to orchestral music. Um, you know, I would I would argue that any rock musician that's a songwriter, for example, uh, when they're hearing a song in their head, they, they can, you know, distinguish which parts are the bass and which is the guitar and which are drums. And and that's the case because they've been listening to rock music their whole life, you know, and it's just a part of their, you know, sort of, you know, DNA, I guess. Um, you know, so listening to a ton of orchestral music to the point where, you know, that sound just becomes a, a very natural part of what you hear in your head. Uh, but also listening while looking at scores, because some of the instruments are, you know, hard to hear the difference between in certain settings. So if you have the score in front of you and you're listening to something and, you, and you're not able to figure out what it is, I mean, there it is right in front of you. Oh, okay, that's an oboe combined with the flute, you know, or something like that. And it's like your ear, you start to learn, you know, what those sounds are just by seeing it and hearing it reinforced with the recording. Um, and then, you know, from a compositional standpoint, one of the greatest exercises I think I did as a as a student of music when I was in undergrad was this particular composition teacher that I mentioned before uh, had me write a piece of music for every single instrument in the orchestra, just a solo piece of music. So, you know, a violin only piece that was, you know, five to 10 minutes long. And then I wrote a, you know, a flute solo that was, you know, five minutes long or something like that. And I really learned how each of those instruments worked by working at on that instrument alone. And I think that sort of really taught me all the colors that all the instruments, all the possible colors that all the instruments offer. And, uh, you know, helped me to start to distinguish one from the next and, you know, figure out what they sound like combined, et cetera. And it, then it just became somewhat natural, I guess. Bringing it back to Battlefront 2, you mentioned in your GDC talk that you had really internalized the uh, the the music of John Williams. Now I know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I I believe the scores are not available. So how hard was it to transcribe all of that? I read in an interview that you had transcribed it. Yeah. So um, yeah, it was pretty difficult, <laughs> but I needed to, you know, at least. You know, but like what I was mentioning before about score study, like listening and looking to scores at the same time, and so you can really you know, figure out exactly what's going on and, and, you know, sort of add that to your own color palette. I mean, I didn't have the scores available to me, so I had to create them for myself so that I could look back and, you know, use them as a reference. Um, I mean, it, I would say probably the first couple of months of me working on Battlefront 1 was me picking my favorite moments from all the original trilogy stuff, which Battlefront 1, the music was supposed to be sort of a, you know, an answer to the original trilogy scores, um, just as an aside. but um, you know, so I took those three 
films and I transcribed basically all my favorite moments and sort of built a little, you know, study book for myself. And, um, and then eventually, you know, I started discovering that there's some PDFs floating around out online that, you know, I, I found access to. And then, then I could actually, it was kind of cool because then I could actually compare my transcriptions to the original scores. Um, but, you know, once I had those, then I, I wasn't transcribing as much anymore. But with Battlefront 2, I actually made sort of a conscious effort to uh, get away from listening to the John Williams scores and looking at the scores because I wanted that score to be um, less, you know, of a B-side to the original record, I guess, and more of an original score that just lived in the world of Star Wars, you know, not as referential, uh, I guess. Um, so, I, I, you know, in order to accomplish that, I basically just kind of abandoned all of the John Williams material just so it wouldn't influence me too much and then just kind of wrote what came naturally. I'm curious, how do you go about internalizing music like that of John Williams? I know you mentioned score study. Uh, are you mostly looking at orchestration or um, sort of theory concepts, intervals, motifs, or, or kind of all of the above? It's a bit of all of the above, but I would say probably with a strong lean towards uh, how he orchestrates. Uh, because if the, it's the orchestration, it's it's the fact that it's a completely symphonic score. You know, I mean, it's it's the whole orchestra playing at once. I mean, that's a very specific sound, at least it, certainly so in modern film. You, you don't hear that as much anymore. I mean, in many cases, it's a hybrid score if it has an orchestra at all. Uh, but but John Williams, that's sort of his his gig. You know, he likes to write these scores for orchestra that are meant just for orchestra. They're almost like concert pieces. And uh, so... Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I studied them, you know, but the orchestration was probably the, the biggest part of it that I tried to use as a takeaway uh, because the orchestration, I, I kind of equate it to if, if I'm an artist and I do a sketch of someone, you know, say I do like a, a still life or a, a portrait or something like that, and I do the sketch in charcoal, that's sort of the creation. Uh, that's, that's the initial art. Now, if I go back and with watercolors, I... I color it in. I mean, I can use basically any color palette I want. The image is still the same. It's just, I'm, you know, I'm sort of putting it through a slightly different filter, so to speak. So what I really did is I sort of adopted his orchestration color palette, you know, just picked up little, you know, idioms and little tricks that he would do with the orchestration and made that part of my color palette. And then I would just write what was most naturally, you know, coming to my own head, uh, just write my own music. And then as I'm orchestrating, I'm orchestrating it with these same, you know, set of colors. And then the, the ultimate result is that it's hopefully something that's original, but sounds like it, it fits right in with the Star Wars universe. What were some um, orchestral techniques that like blew your mind when you were studying his scores? You know, it's funny because um, th there's a lot of things that I thought were going on that ultimately we're not. <laughs> so when I did the transcriptions initially, um, you know, a lot of things I thought were more complicated than, than they actually were. And uh, that was what actually fascinated me most when I was actually digging into the actual scores and looking at them is that, you know, in many cases, he just has uh, really smart uh, doublings and, and, and combinations of instruments playing the same line, either in unison or octaves. You know, uh, one particular combination I thought was particularly cool was uh combining uh clarinet and oboe which you know if, if 
if anyone out there listening is, you know, a, a student of orchestration, it's like what, you know, 90% of the orchestration books, you know, orchestration 101 says never combine clarinets and oboes because they're going to sound out of tune. Um, but this is actually not the case at all. And he does it. And as long as you're doing it within a certain range where both instruments are comfortable and neither sounds strained or out of place, it's actually a really beautiful sound that he uses a lot. And I thought it was a really cool thing to see because I, I had always sort of, you know, blocked that as a possibility based on just, you know, you know, reading books. And, you know, it, it was kind of just an example of, you know, don't believe everything you read, try things. You know, I mean, there's many cases where he just he just tries stuff out. You know, I mean, it, you'll see it in the score and you listen to it and you don't even hear what you're seeing, you know, where he'll combine, you know, French horns with, you know, like one trombone and a bucket mute or something like that. And it's like, well, I don't really hear the trombone and a bucket mute, but, you know, maybe he was just trying something new, just wanted to see what it sounded like, um, you know, or maybe it is adding some, you know, slightly euphonious velvety tone to the horns or something like that that you're not really perceiving but you know all these little interesting uh instrument combinations i thought were what were most fascinating beyond the surface level stuff of you know wow he does these big wind you know woodwind runs and scales and you know big harp glisses and that kind of thing that's sort of his icing that he uses and you know he's definitely taking that from you know uh romanticism you know era of you know orchestral composing uh, he's not reinventing the wheel with some of that stuff but the stuff that i thought was most interesting and unique were some of these uh instrument color combinations so. all right so let's say i have one of your expertly transcribed um john williams pieces in front of me as well as the recording so i have it right here i have you next to me as my coach step by step how would you recommend i listen to it because i know we're talking a lot about listening critically you know doing score study but I think for, for people who see a big orchestral score, they might get a little overwhelmed. So where do you think step-by-step step, someone should start if they want to really reduce a score and, and study it well? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think the smartest thing to do is to choose something that is, is simple enough to grasp on a first go. I mean, if you're trying to do a transcription, for example, or you're trying to do a reduction, um, I mean, what I was going to say before you actually said the word reduction was the best way to, to sort of break it down is to do a reduction, try to actually take the full score and, you know, first combine all the wins and see, you know, oh, wow. Okay. So it looks like there's, you know, there's eight win parts and it looks like there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. But when you boil it down, it's like, oh, okay, every win player is playing the exact same thing, just in octaves or something like that. And to reduce each section and then reduce the entire score down to maybe even just one piano staff or, or two at the most. And um, this uh, sort of, in, in a way, it kind of, it's like stripping it, uh, you know, a house down to the blueprint and being able to see exactly what it was that, that made it what it was. And uh, I think this is probably the best way to study scores is to, and to do it in small chunks too. Don't, don't bite off like the entire firebird suite or something like that. And so I'm going to transcribe the whole thing. Take eight measures of something that really, you know, appeals to you. Find, you know, a spot that you really love and, and say, okay, let's figure this, these eight measures out. Let's first reduce the strings and see what's going on. Now let's reduce the winds. Now let's reduce, reduce the brass. Percussion is usually just color, you know, and, but you can always look and see how percussion is being used to sort of accentuate certain things. So do it in sections, do it in small chunks, because otherwise, you know, it, it will be extremely overwhelming. 
I mean, when I was doing these transcriptions, that's also how I worked. So I would, uh, I would first transcribe the melody and then figure out what instruments were playing the melody. Then I'd transcribe the, the harmonic language, you know, like the actual chord progression, if you will, that was going under, underneath of it, regardless of the instruments playing it. And then sort of once I had that framework, then I could go in and transcribe just strings, uh, just brass, just winds, and then figure out what the percussion was doing as an after thought. And, um, you know, but having sort of framework of, you know, the harmonic language and the melody first, you know, made all of that a little more, um, you know, easy of a task to manage because otherwise it would be extremely overwhelming, like you said. So that's pretty amazing to hear because I, this is kind of silly, but for some reason I had always just equated score reductions with score studies and I didn't really know the difference. So this, that was a, a massive uh wisdom bomb you just dropped on me so if i'm hearing you right a score reduction is essentially finding elements that are uh like you, you just you isolate the strings you don't pay attention to anything else you just isolate the strings for a second you find everything that's playing the same thing and you reduce it down to let's say one staff and then you you kind of do the same continually you know compressing 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 until you have a simplified version of the piece or am i missing something that's exactly right yeah i mean uh one of the one of the assignments that I would always have when I was, you know, a student studying in university was, was doing this very thing. And that's how I actually learned a lot about orchestration was taking scores of, you know, classical repertoire and doing reductions all the way down to just where you could actually play the entire piece just on piano. Uh, you know, and sometimes that means reducing it to the point where certain elements disappear. Um, you know, things that are maybe just, ornamentation don't really add to the actual content of the music but you know you sort of figure these things out as you go and as long as you're doing it in sections and in chunks uh you'll start to see patterns it's like oh okay i see he always you know a fourth trumpet is always doubling with french horns when they are playing in unison or something like that that's something i've noticed in john williams scores you know it's a like a strange combination that i never really you know thought of before it's like i always thought french horns by themselves that's like a certain sound but that one low trumpet playing along with them gives them a little edge and helps them cut through the texture so you know it's just like finding little tricks out like that that you would never notice if you didn't actually just boil the whole thing down to just what's actually being played you know without consideration of the instruments playing it just reduce it all the way down to just one or two staves and you can see a lot and then you know what i would also do is that you know when i was studying is i would reduce things and then I take that reduction and I'd orchestrate it my own way, actually break it back out to full orchestra and then put the two side by side and see, you know, what differences I came up with, what ideas I came wow. up with that weren't maybe in the original or something like that. It's just a good exercise, you know, it's a sort of honing in craft, I guess. Um, so just to clarify, so when you're doing a reduction, because I'm, I'm blown away by this, I want to do it right after this interview. I'm so excited. When you do a reduction, are you taking octaves as well and sort of simplifying them into just one pitch? Or do you sort of break out the octaves and consider those separate entities? Um, I tend to break out, uh, I leave the octaves where they are, um, unless they're so wide that, you know, if you're actually trying to do like a legitimate piano reduction, which, you know, going down to just a treble and a bass clef staff, you know, something that a piano player can sit down and play, then yeah, you, you might reduce octaves down to just a unison or something like that uh, to make it playable. But, you know, if it's an exercise in just figuring out musically what's going on, I'll, I'll leave the octaves as they are. 
um, it, it is a nice step to go a step further and then reduce the octaves down to just, uh, particularly if they're melodic, you know, if it's actually a melody and it's in maybe like three octaves, you can reduce the melody down to just one octave so you can see, oh, okay, now I see the line for what it is rather than having to figure out, oh, okay, is this harmonizer, is that octaves, you know, and always having to like, you know, decipher it. But um, typically I, I try to keep everything in the range they were originally in. You geeked out a lot about William's counterpoint. Um, and I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about that. What makes it so good and why that was such a, a big point of uh, interest when you were transcribing the scores? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think what makes it so interesting is that in, in most modern scores, you really just don't hear it. I mean, the, the art of sort of having counter lines and, and counterpoint within, you know, modern scores is, is somewhat of a lost art. John Williams mm-hmm. is a master at understanding um, sort of the principle of counterpoint, which is uh, making sure that the, the melody, the main line that you want to hear is always orchestrated in a way where it's featured. And then whatever the secondary line is, the counter line to that is orchestrated in a way where it's in the middle ground. And then there's usually like a third or fourth line. And they're always orchestrated into a background. And he does that by choosing uh, by instrument choice, who's playing what particular line. That's one way. Another way is to uh, choose what range that line is being played in, even on an instrument. Like, for example, if you were writing a counter line for the clarinet section and you had it above the treble staff, um, that's going to come out really loud because they speak really loudly in that range. Uh, but if you wanted them to play a counter line it's, that you wanted just to hear more as a, as a middle ground or a background line, I might put them in like their lower, uh, mid-lower range because that range doesn't speak quite as loudly. It's more felt, not heard. So he makes really logical choices like that so that he can fit multiple lines within one musical moment, uh, all interacting with each other. But it never feels overwhelming and confusing to listen to like your ear always knows exactly what to be what to go to first which is always the melody and then these counter lines are sort of dancing around it and i think that that's just a level of craft that you know i mean he there's no one compares to the way he's able to do that not in not in like uh you know popular um you know music for media at least um and I mean, that certainly comes from his you know, classical background and, you know, he's somewhat lucky that he still gets to write that type of music because it's, it's sort of not the fashion right now. But, um, you know, he, he's just a master at it. I, I mean, I wish I could. I, I still haven't completely figured out the level of uh, counterpoint understanding that he has. And I, I'm, it's like something I'm still working on <laughs> for, for what it's worth. And I like to, you know, kind of understand how much respect I have for this guy because I'm still trying to figure it out myself. Well, I think you did a phenomenal job. I listened through to the entire soundtrack and I especially enjoyed the Jedi battle on Hoth where everything breaks down, everything drops except the brass and the low and high brass are kind of weaving in and out of each other. And I noticed uh, a lot of really Williams-esque counterpoint there. So I just want to commend you for that. Did you intentionally implement some of his counterpoint in that section? Do you know what part I'm referring to? Yep, I know exactly what you're talking about, and um, yeah, I mean it's it, it wasn't if if I was implementing it wasn't intentional, other than you know after having listened to so much John Williams music, particularly Star Wars music for such a long period of time, 
prior to getting into writing all of that score. I think, I think it was just in my vocabulary at that point. So it wasn't necessarily a conscious effort to be like, oh, okay, now I'm going to do the, you know, the Williams counterpoint thing here. It's just, that's what was, the music was naturally calling for. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah, certainly it's inspired by the, the way he treats counterpoint. And, you know, it, as much so as his, his counterpoint is inspired by, you know, uh, Tchaikovsky and, you know, or all the way to Shostakovich. And, you know, you can hear all of, his craft comes from a, a lot of score study on his own as well. You know, I think that uh, you, you can always hear quite a few parallels between what he writes and, and what he obviously loves listening to. I'm just picturing you like Neo in the matrix where you're plugged into a constant stream of John Williams music and then you <laughs> get unplugged and you just say, I know counterpoint. Yeah, that's how, yeah, that's exactly. what it sounds like it happened. You just were so soaked in the vocabulary of Williams. You came out and you just naturally wrote counterpoint, which is incredible. So I just have uh, two more questions for you. Uh, one of which is what, what are some of your favorite personal orchestral doublings? So as you studied Williams and also just with your own experience in writing lots of orchestral music, what are some things that just uh, always kind of you have in your back pocket that always sound good? Yeah. You know, actually one of my favorites, <clears throat> which is, I think I mentioned it earlier. And this one I just straight up stole from John Williams, which is having the whole French horn section playing in unison with the fourth trumpet, particularly the fourth trumpet by himself or herself playing along with the horns in unison. Um, and mm. it, the fourth trumpet player typically because that person is usually a specialist in playing on the lower end of the horn. Um, so they usually have a particularly fat sound in that range which is slightly off the normal range of the trumpet being low where the horns sit. Um, that combination is really cool because it it's, you don't notice the trumpet, but the horns suddenly have edge and cut through the texture. So that's, that's one of my favorite little things that I picked up from Williams. I mean, it's pretty simple. Uh, one of my personal favorite combinations that I sort of played around with myself uh, first in Battlefront 1, and this is, I, I don't recall if I ever saw this in any Williams scores, but um, I was just trying things out, is English horn combined with uh, two or three French horns playing with a wood mute. In. And the sound is, um, it's this really sorrowful, kind of somber quality, because the English horn is sort of a sad sounding instrument, I guess, if you know, depending on what it's playing. But you know, if you put it in this like sort of meaty register that the range it speaks in the best, it can be sort of like this sorrowful kind of thing. Uh, adding the horns to it added this level of angst. But if it was just horns without the mutes, they'd overpower the English horn. You wouldn't hear it. Putting mm -hmm. the wood mutes in softens the tone of the horn just enough where it just feels like the English horn suddenly kind of comes to life and has more of this angst to it. And I use that quite a bit in uh, Battlefront 1 and 2. I think it's probably my favorite sort of melodic combination when when you're doing something that's somewhat soft or underspoken. For those of our listeners out there who are um, getting really excited and maybe hungry for more, what are some resources, books, 
videos um, that you would recommend for self-study for someone who maybe can't afford a formal education but wants to get up to date on um, or not even up to date but wants to just familiarize themselves with all the nuances of uh, orchestration yeah sure i mean i think honestly beyond books step one is find recordings of of orchestral music that you like um you know scour the internet and try to find the scores that those two things the score combined with the recording are are your absolutely your best tools i mean that's better than having the actual composer teaching you themselves because <laughs> in many cases the composer you know may or may not even be a very good teacher or may able to even ex- explain what they were doing but you when you can look at it and then immediately hear the result you, you start to make a connection between the thing you're hearing and the thing and how it's created so that's step 1 hands down listening and and looking at scores both of these things are pretty easy to find without, you know, really a budget. I mean, you know, sometimes I'm just like, oh man, I really want to see what there's this cool thing I really love in the right of spring or whatever. Let me see if I can find a, a PDF of the score. You know, I'll look online and there's there's plenty of stuff out there and you can dig up. Um, second is probably the, the number one book that I use is the uh, Samuel Adler orchestration book. And I think it's personally, I think it's the best orchestration book out there. It's simple to read. It's simple to understand. Um, it's based in sort of the Korsakoff orchestration tradition, but, you know, with a slightly modern twist. And I say modern, I, I'd say that with a complete grain of salt, because I think that book was actually written in like the 60s or something, if not earlier. But um, but it's a great resource. Uh, it's probably my number one resource. I mean, I actually like at one point printed out you know, the, the instrument ranges page, <laughs> you know, because it's not just, doesn't just show the ranges of the instruments. It shows you the ranges of the instruments and then within those ranges, what the color differentials are. So like, you know, a clarinet, wow. for example, and, you know, the low range is sort of throaty and breathy or whatever you want to call it. And then the middle range, it's, it's, it's more, you know, like vocal like, and then the upper range is more nasal and pinched, you know, and it gives you these little descriptions and it kind of helps you to see it you know, like a, like an actual visual, uh, like visual range on each instrument and then see like sort of a graph that shows you what the, you know, perceived color of the instrument is in those ranges. And, uh, you know, that's a tool. I mean, I have it on my desk all the time. It's not that I don't know the ranges of the instruments. It's just a nice resource to always have there as a reminder. Okay. Yeah. That's what it sounds like in that range. If I do that, you know, and, uh, but that's, that's the number one for me. It's the Adler orchestration book, hands down. Fantastic. Well, I just want to end on one question. A lot of the people who listen to this podcast, a lot of uh, my friends are uh, younger composers or composers that are really trying to break into the video game music space and they're hustling and they're trying, they're trying to network, they're trying to write music. What's some advice that you would give to yourself uh, maybe 10 years ago or whenever you started um, kind of branching into the film, TV, music industry? What's some advice that you know now that you would offer your younger self? Um, I, I would say to be very open-minded to changing trends in media because I honestly had opportunities to work on video games before I worked on my first video game. And I kind of dismissed them as kind of silly because I thought, well, I'm a film composer and I'm out here to write for films. And, you know, what's this video game thing? And, uh, and, basically dismissed it as like, you know, not 
something that I thought was, you know, on my career path. And then when I actually landed on a video game and that, you know, sort of in a somewhat lucky fashion, um, I found that I really enjoyed working on games. And it one game led to the next to the point where, you know, games were as, as much a part of my career as, as film was. And, you know, now, so I now I'd say probably they're, you know, 80% of what I'm doing is, is games. So, you know, being open-minded to the change of trends, you know, the different types of media that call for music, uh, who knows what's next? So just be open-minded to that. Um, if you're trying, if, like on a more specific note, if you're trying to get into scoring games, I mean, with, with the game industry, it's, it's a pretty great industry in that it has multiple resources for uh, individuals trying to break into the industry. So they, we have the Game Developers Conference, for example. Uh, E3 is happening right now in LA. Um, there's there's all these conferences where all of the game developers are there. They show up. I mean, GDC in particular, uh, the Game Developers Conference, it's, it's designed for people to meet other people in the industry for the sole purpose of getting hired on projects. So it's not even... Sure. You know, it, it, you, you can't... You, like you wouldn't even feel uncomfortable networking because that's the whole point of it. You know, like they're there so that you can meet with them. They even have like systems that where you can set up, you can go through and pick the companies that you're interested in working with. And it, it'll automatically build like a little meeting setup for you and where you can like route your, your day, you know, go to like five or six different meetings and meet different audio directors from different companies, that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, of course they're, they're meeting with lots of composers, but, they're taking demos and, you know, they're having conversations. So, you know, talk to them, see what they're working on. If it sounds like it's something you're interested in, you know, show them what you can do, uh, hand out demos, you know, hand out cards through the website, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and uh, just network. And because those outlets are there in the game industry, they're, they're not as much there in film and TV. I mean, film and TV is like, you live in LA and you, you just happen to meet somebody at a Starbucks, you know, that ends up being the director that gets you on your next big gig. I mean, that's kind of how LA works. But in the game industry, it's like, I actually, you know, set up business meetings at a conference designed just for setting up business meetings with video game developers. And it's very cut and dry. And, and it is in many ways, it's a little easier to navigate. Um, I'm not saying it's easy to get in to the industry, but it's certainly easier to navigate how to get in and sort of line yourself up properly. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much, Gordy. I really appreciate you taking the time out to speak with me. Um, there is so much value in uh, our talk here that I think people who are listening, uh, composers, aspiring composers, arrangers, and orchestrators uh, alike will be able to learn from. So thank you so much uh, for taking the time out. I'm sure we could talk for another hour. And I just want to say again, um, the music of Battlefront 2 is, is incredible. Once again, just wanted to say fantastic job on that. And uh, thank you so much for, uh, for taking the time out. To Thanks talk. so much. Thanks for having me on. If you enjoy these interviews and want to support the podcast, honestly, the best way to do that is just to share this episode with a friend. Now, if you want to be a real mensch, you can rate the podcast on iTunes, which really helps, goes a long way for visibility. If you're listening on the Apple Podcast app, just scroll down and tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves. Follow me on Twitter at Matt Kenyon Music and let me know what you think of the show. Until then, you've been listening to Composer Code, the podcast dedicated to helping you, dear listener, 
succeed as a video game composer. Take care.